Well, welcome tonight to Plum Creek Chapel. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to pause in the middle of a week when we're all so busy, so many irons in the fire and so many burdens and obligations of life that we can just take a moment to just reflect on your grace and, and really, you know, become acquainted with it all over again uh, and recognize just how matchless and wonderful it is. And pray that as we study your word tonight and look at several passages of scripture that your word would not return void as you promised it wouldn't and that it would build us up in the faith. And Lord, as always, we pray if there's anyone listening to this uh, uh, session tonight, either live or down the road on podcast or video recording, we just pray that if they don't know you and they hear this, that the Spirit of God would use the proclamation of the word uh, tonight to convict them of their need for a Savior and that today might be the day of salvation as they trust in him. And so we just pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so lots going on uh, in the last few days uh, since uh, our last we were last together last Wednesday. Um, let me make a couple of general announcements, and then I'll kind of tell you what we're going to do tonight and what's coming down the pike the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, so uh, there are three new videos that are posted from Sunday. I was in New Mexico Sunday speaking at a conference there. Uh, we've got a overview and summary of Spirit of the Antichrist. Now, if you've been following our ministry for some time, you know that ever since the book came out, we've talked a lot about this at various conferences across the country. So nothing necessarily new, but every message is a little bit different, different audience, different questions, different approach as the Lord, you know, puts it on my heart what to say and how to prepare for it. So uh, it might be worth a listen to that part. And then I also did a message on how to spot deception. That one's a little bit different from some of the others, but it's essentially chapter 11 in the book uh, with, you know, some add-ins and things. But the one that's uh, a little bit more uh, detailed and that I didn't cover, at least in volume one, I'm going to cover it in volume two that's coming out, uh, is about transhumanism. And this was the fi third and final session there, and it also has a Q&A at the end that's about 15 minutes long. Uh, so I hope you'll uh, check that out. Got a lot of great feedback from that uh, already. And then uh, also on Sunday, I posted a podcast only, so this is just audio, on God's 490-year timetable. And uh, I did, I had recorded that, I think it was Friday before we left, and then had it scheduled to drop on Sunday. So if you haven't listened to that yet, it's a, basically 30 minutes of just explaining this key prophecy in Scripture uh, about God's final 490 years leading up to the return of Christ. So a lot of people don't realize that God has actually given us a roadmap to the day of when Christ will return. Uh, now, the way Daniel describes it, and you have to listen to the podcast to, to, help, to have me explain it in more detail, we don't know when that final seven years of that 490-year timetable will start. So that's why we can't set a date, because we're sort of living in that inter-advent time between the first 483 years and the final seven years. But boy, once that rapture happens and that treaty is signed, according to Daniel 9.27, we know seven years until Christ comes back. And by the way, we'll be coming back uh, with him. Uh, and then uh, yesterday, and those of you that are on the Plum Creek Chapel new, uh, email list, uh, which by the way, we now have 250 something people on the Plum Creek Chapel list. So that's fantastic. Uh, you know, the Lord is using our humble uh, church to reach people all over the place. And uh, we get emails and letters that 
say, hey, you know, you're our church. We've never been here physically, but you're our church. And so that just really warms my heart. So you'll get this in the newsletter that comes out tomorrow, but it's an article I wrote yesterday called God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. Does anybody know what that reference is to, a play on words or kind of turning a phrase there? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is by who? Do you remember? Jonathan Edwards. So yeah, I talk about Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening and that sermon, and then I talk about how after all these years, it's kind of shifted, and today what we're witnessing is God in the hands of, of an angry mob. And uh, so anyway, interesting short read. All the devotionals are about a page or page and a half, so hopefully you'll read that. And then I want to begin tonight with, a, I think, a perfect story uh, of a phone conversation I had yesterday that will segue right into our finishing up of this Calvinism series tonight, especially the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. So got a call, I got several calls, but I returned one yesterday uh, from a person who was uh, so appreciative of the Spirit of the Antichrist book and was wondering when Volume 2 was going to come out. Uh, but I could kind of tell that wasn't the only reason they called, and sure enough, uh, they had uh, uh, an axe to grind with me, and it relates to a section uh, on page 55, which is the beginning of chapter 5 in the book, in which I talk about the last day's apostasy. And uh, I'll go ahead and read just a section of it, just so you can kind of get the context, and then I'll explain uh, what the, this caller had a problem with. Uh, in this section, I say those who rule the world are not necessarily the ones with flesh and blood who, can, who we can see and identify and to whom we can give a label or title. Paul told us that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Why? Hold on a second here. Uh, why will, will they depart from the faith? And he goes on to say it was demonic persuasion and demonic, d d demonic influence that led these first century Jewish Christians to depart from the faith. Uh, it is possible, and then here's the, the rub, it is possible as a believer in Jesus Christ to deny the faith. This does not mean that those who deny the faith go to hell, because our eternal destiny is not conditioned upon our being able to hang on to our faith. Jesus did not say, if you believe the gospel and keep on believing it until you die, then you will go to heaven. He said you receive eternal life the moment you believe. And at that precise moment in time, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You pass from death to life and Jesus said, you shall never face judgment, John 5, 24. If we had to hang on to our faith and keep on believing until we breathe our last breath in order to go to heaven, then Jesus would have said, when you believe in me, you have the potential for eternal life or the possibility of eternal life or the prospect of eternal life. Does that sound familiar? You've probably heard me say that at least once through the years. Uh, sometimes if you're, if you're in our church and you read my books, it sounds like, you know, I've heard him say that before. You can probably hear me saying it in your head. And you don't want me in your head. That's the last thing you want. But anyway, Jesus did not say any of those things. He said, when you believe in me, you have eternal life. If it could be lost, it was never eternal to begin with. And so then I give a couple of examples, and I talk about 2 Timothy 2.13, where Paul plainly states that even if we have no faith, we've lost all faith, God cannot deny himself, so he will not deny us, because we're part of the family of God. And so... Uh, I conclude by saying, obviously, it's a serious thing for a Christian to deny the faith, and there are great consequences, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. Yet consider this, 
Who among us, if someone put a gun to our head and threatened to kill us on the spot if we did not deny our Christian faith, might not in that moment of weakness deny the faith? Perhaps you think you're strong enough and would never do that. Um, but then I say, you know, what about if they put a gun to your wife's head or your children's head or your husband's head or something like that? So, uh, regardless, I, I conclude, our eternal destiny is not contingent upon us hanging on to God. No one can pluck us out of his hand. The moment we trust Christ, we are born again. And here's the connection to this book. When Paul warned that in the latter times some would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1, he was not addressing the eternal destiny of those who do so. He was merely stating a fact. There will be widespread last days apostasy, and we are living in that time right now. So the caller said, oh, your book was great, and I, you know, a lot, a lot of good stuff in there. We talked about some things uh, uh, that are going to be in the second book that he was asking about. And then he said, but, you know, I don't know why on page 55 you, you took the time to go into that because, you know, he said, that's so controversial. Not everybody agrees with you. And, and he said, I certainly don't agree. I mean, if you deny the faith, you're going to hell, you know. And, and so I said, well, if you know much about our ministry, uh, by the way, this guy does not have internet, does not have email. That's the reason he called. He heard about the book on Jan Markell, called them to order it. That's how he got the book. He didn't order it online. So I'm, I have no problem sharing the story, even though I could share it anyway because I'm not mentioning any names, but I know he's not going to hear it. But um, I said, uh, if you know much about our ministry, you know, we've been passionate about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel since our inception. And so anything I write, I'm going to give the clarity of the gospel. And I referred him to the epilogue at the back of the book, which is explicitly for sharing the gospel with those who might have read the book and don't know the Lord. But, uh, but he had a real problem with this notion that, you know, someone uh, could deny the faith. So I tried to explain to him, well, uh, you know, how do you know you won't deny the faith? And he said, I, I'm confident I'll never deny the faith. And I said, well, can you tell the future? Well, no. I said, well, so how do you know five, ten years from now? I said, you know how many people have said exactly what you've said and through some unfortunate series of, of events and crises and tragedies or whatever it might be, uh, maybe they just get away from the Lord, get out of His Word, and somehow they become susceptible to Satan's attacks and and, and, and end up denying the faith. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen 20 years from now. And, I, you know, he kept saying, well, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. He's saying, I'm just saying if you deny the faith, that proves you never had it. Now, where have you heard that phrase before? Last week, we spent the whole session quoting uh, Calvinist after Calvinist, and that's their view. So I pointed out to him that really Arminianism teaches you have to do good works to be saved. And Calvinism teaches you have to do good works or you're not saved. And in either case, your behavior, whether that's actual acts of righteousness and morality or an attitude of, of you know, continuing to trust the Lord and follow the Lord and trust in Him or whatever it is, the point is you have to persevere uh, to the end in order to be saved. And so... Uh, you know, that's a classic example of where most uh, people are. And he wasn't a self-proclaimed Calvinist. Uh, he was just parroting or expressing, parroting is a bad word, I'm not suggesting he's just mindlessly following them, but he was expressing, essentially, the Calvinist view on perseverance of the saints. And somehow, as we looked at again and again, 
you know, last week, they do not see the inherent uh, problem with, you know, su suggesting that a person has to persevere to the end in order to be saved. They, they just don't, it, do, it does not pose a problem to them. Well, it sure does for me, because I believe eternal life is a present possession, and it's not contingent upon what happens after that. And I understand that in our humanness and in our, you know, the, 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 the biggest thing the devil has done from the, throughout church history, from the moment that Christ died and rose again and the church was founded, is attack the gospel from the perspective of works. Remember, the very first letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit and one of the earliest letters in the entire New Testament was Galatians. And the whole point of Galatians, which he jumps right into in the first few verses, is to say, hey, you folks up there in southern Galatia, and by the way, if you're uh, coming on Sunday mornings or if you're watching our messages on Sunday mornings, uh, we just talked about this the last time, two weeks ago, and we're going to be talking about it again this Sunday, Acts 13 and 14, Paul's first missionary journey. It's in that region of southern Galatia with cities like Lystra, uh, the smaller Antioch in, in the region of Pisidia, Derby, uh, Iconium. And this is the people he's writing the letter to. That's why it's called Galatians, the, the, the region of southern Galatia. And he says to them, hey, if, you're, if anybody is suggesting a gospel other than the one I preached to you when I was there, they are accursed. They're wrong. They're coming under strict judgment. Why was he writing that? Because much like today, there was a group of legalistic, you know, minded uh, Judaizers who who came in at, right on the heels of Paul and Barnabas leaving and began to tell all these new converts that hey if you really want to be saved if you really want to get to heaven you know you gotta you gotta be circumcised you gotta keep the law you gotta do this and that you can't just believe you know you gotta do a little more than that and that's what I believe these uh, uh, Calvinists are doing like we looked at last week uh, John Piper, again, no, nothing personal against him. I'm not trying to unfairly criticize him. I'm just thinking, I'm just saying, here's what he's written, and we've got to run it through the grid of Scripture. And, and I'm open to that too. Anybody can take anything I've written and try to hold me accountable to the Word of God. I'm not perfect. I may make mistakes or may, you know, need refinement in certain views. I'm, I'm not, I don't take it personal. Uh, and so I'm not attacking John Piper here, but he says there is no doubt that Jesus saw some measure of real lived out obedience to the will of God as necessary for final salvation. What God will require at the judgment, talking about the pearly gates, is not our perfection, but sufficient fruit to show that the tree had life. There it is. That's, that's a perfect articulation of uh, this doctrine of a perseverance of the saints. Wayne Grudem says the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So the fifth point of Calvinism, as I said last week, is really just the, the, the great escape clause. It allows them in their theology to consign to hell anyone who's not living out the new nature in Christ. And remember, in the Calvinist theology, they don't believe that you have the old nature. The new nature eradicates the old nature, they believe. Which is why they can then say, if there's consistent, habitual, continual, insert whatever adjective you want, sin in your life, then you can't possibly be a Christian because the new nature would never allow that. The new nature, just like 
The Spirit compels you to believe. You don't have a choice in the matter. The Spirit compels you to grow and to do good works and all of that. So it really is, it's kind of an escape clause. They just, uh, you know, they can hastily conclude based on your behavior that, well, you're not elect. You're not going to heaven. Sproul said, uh, true faith is always accompanied by non-saving but absolutely necessary works. If there are no good works, there is no true faith. And remember, they always qualify faith as true or false, real or fake, genuine or spurious. And we talked last week about their creation of this tripartite definition of faith, uh, that faith has to have three aspects, and uh, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And if you lack fiducia, they say, then you, your faith wasn't real. So it's not how it's not who you believe in or what you believe that saves you, it's how you believe um, that saves you. And that fiducia, as we said last week, is this concept of willful submission, promising to obey, promising to follow, surrendering to the Lordship, making Him Lord, putting Him on the throne of your life. So you see a lot of gospel tracks. I don't think I talked about this last week. Um, another uh, call that I got that was very encouraging uh, this week, or I don't remember when it came in, but I returned it uh, Monday or Tuesday. And it was a lady saying, hey, I want to get some gospel tracks to share the gospel with people, but I want to make sure they're right. Can you tell me what's in your gospel tracks? And I said, happily, thank you for asking that question. Most people don't, you know, any, any old track will do. Well, a lot of gospel tracks will, at the end, when it's telling you what you have to do to actually be saved, will have this picture of a person with a throne in their chest, you know, like it's a stick figure or something, and it has this throne there, and it says, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to take yourself off that throne, and you've got to put Jesus in charge of your life. You've got to promise to obey and follow Him. He's now in charge, and if you do that, if you make Him Lord, or put Him on the throne of your life, then you'll go to heaven. The Bible never says that anywhere. That's a complete uh, creation of this Calvinist concept of fiducia. But in reality, as we talked about last week, faith just simply means the confidence or assurance in some stated or implied truth. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins, in that instant that you believe it, you're saved. You don't have to really, really, really believe it, or really, 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 really believe it, or, you know, believe it with your heart and not your head, you know, those kind of crazy dichotomies. You just have to believe it. And you know whether you believe something, don't you? I mean, unless you have a mental incapacity of some kind, everyone on earth knows whether or not they believe something. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, I guess you would call it a psychological or a nominological fallacy to say that someone can not know whether they believe something. Again, assuming they're not, you know, have a head injury or some type of uh, incapacity in their thinking. But, of course, you know what you believe. With every proposition, you either believe it or you don't. If I asked you, do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again for your sins, and He's the only one who can forgive sin and give you the gift of eternal life, do you believe that? Are you trusting in Him to do that? You might say, no, I don't know. I'm still working through it. Okay, well, that's unbelief. To not believe is unbelief. So there are really only two options. Yeah. Okay. Romans 7. 
Yeah. So the question is, what do Calvinists do with Romans 7? And I got into trouble with this a few weeks ago, remember, because I was talking about that and I hastily uh, lumped MacArthur in with all other Calvinists on, on that view of Romans 7. It turns out MacArthur is a little bit of an anomaly. He's an anomaly in a lot of theological areas, and that's not a criticism. He calls himself that. He says, I'm a leaky dispensationalist, meaning I'm a dispensationalist, but I'm not consistently dispensationalist because I'm a Calvinist. So he, he acknowledges that there's some, uh, you know, differences there. Uh, he, he stands alone, which that's to his credit. You know, we should all be willing to say, I believe this because the Bible says it. And if it disagrees with a system, you know, that's fine. So anyway, MacArthur being the exception, most Calvinists uh, take Romans 7 as Paul referring to his pre-conversion life, not his present life. In other words, before I got saved, you know, before the Lord met me on the Damascus Road and forced me to believe the gospel because I have no choice in the matter, I was struggling with sin. That's their take on it. No, it doesn't say that. But they have to, just like 1 John 2, 2 doesn't say Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the elect. And John 3, 16 doesn't say the elect of the world. It, they, they have to make their uh, theology fit the passages, right? So, and again, we all do that sometimes. I'm not, you know, trying to say... I mean, frankly, all doctrinal error comes down to our uh, failure to be consistent in how we handle the Word, you know. Uh, it's, it's one thing to, to interpret it literally. It's another thing to consistently interpret it literally. And so where Calvinists, I think, miss the mark in their hermeneutics and their Bible study method uh, is in, connect, in, in understanding the distinction between the Gospels and the Epistles. And so they take passages in the Gospels that are related to national Israel, such as Romans 9 through 11, or related to the promises uh, to Israel, or related to discipleship rather than salvation. And so they'll take all of Jesus' high calls to discipleship that he's giving to believers during his earthly ministry, uh, such as, you know, take up your cross and follow me, and count the cost, and you know, don't put your hand to the plow and look back, all those things. And they make those synonymous with faith, and, and they bring them into faith here with their definition of saving faith. And, uh, and they don't understand that, no, that's not talking about how to get saved. They do the same thing with John 15. And I know MacArthur takes this view correctly, because I've written about it. Um, I mean, not correctly. He takes this view consistent with the Calvinist view, is what I meant to say. Uh, and that is in John 15 when Jesus says, abide in me or you're not my disciples. He says, you have to abide to be saved. Again, abiding is a synonym for faith. But that's not at all what abide means. Abide is the Greek word meno, which means to remain close to, uh, remain in, remain close to. And Jesus, at the time he's giving that instruction in the upper room, Judas had already left to go betray the Lord. It was just the 11 believers left. Why would Jesus tell 11 believers that he just spent three and a half years with how to get saved when they already were saved? Not only that, but John, who was in the room 60 years later, writes his first epistle, and he reflects back on the same admonition to abide in the Lord. And that's how we have much joy. That's how we are going to be blessed. That's how we have intimacy with the Lord. But it's possible to not be abiding. That's why Jesus commanded it. When you're sinning, you're not abiding in the Lord. You can't be sinning and be close in close fellowship with the Lord at the same time. 
in First uh, John three uh, is uh, ad- admittedly uh, in their English translations a little bit of a difficult passage for a lot of people. It's kind of like James two is, but if you look at it in its context and look at what the words would have meant to the original hearers, it makes perfect sense. Basically, um, John says that the born of God part of you never sins. You can't ever sin and say, "Look at the Holy Spirit made me do," you know. But the old man is constantly, you know, knocking on the door saying, hey, come on, isn't this apple big and shiny and nice? Come on, come on. And so there's this old man, new man dichotomy. But there's no sin in Christ. Therefore, if you're sinning, you're not walking in Christ. Positionally, you're still in Christ. Nothing can change that. But because the Calvinist view does not distinguish between discipleship and salvation, between sanctification and justification... It's a zero-sum game. They all go together. It's the blame it on God view. God does it all. He saves you and He forces you to obey. If, if you're not walking in Christ, it's an indication that uh, you're not saved. Remember, that's uh, you know what these uh, quotes uh, said. Here's A.A. Uh, a. Hodge. Perseverance in holiness is the only sure evidence of the genuineness of a past experience, as of the validity of our confidence as to our future salvation. You have to uh, keep keep on keeping on. Uh, Sproul, in essence, the doctrine teaches that if you have saving faith, you'll never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. Um, you know, if again, so you so you can lose it apparently. If you lose it, you never had it. Well, you didn't really lose it. You just never had it, right? So again, it's that escape uh, clause. Um, you know, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. When Reformed Christians talk about the perseverance of the saints, they mean that precisely because God perseveres with us, we also must persevere. We must be faithful. This is his words. It is therefore also proper to say that a Christian is one who is characterized by a full faith to the very end of his life. Um, Those who are genuinely saved, Sproul said, are those who prove themselves to be doers of the word. So we went over these. I won't repeat them all, but I just want you to understand this has serious uh, implications as my conversation with that gentleman uh, had. Now, you know, he's confident he's saved, and, and I'm confident he is too if he's ever trusted in Christ. But he, he, his own theology, if he really thinks about it, shouldn't give him zero assurance. He really shouldn't be assured of his salvation uh, because in his own theology, if he were to deny the faith in the future, it would prove he never had it he wouldn't lose it he just never had it to begin with right and that's not good enough for me i believe the promise of christ who said i give you eternal life and you shall never perish yeah did i hear you correctly that the part that is christ doesn't sin but if we attempt to walk with christ basically that's impossible as a uh, no, so uh, you heard correctly that Christ doesn't sin. I think we can okay. check that one off. Uh, if that's the hardest question I get all night, I'm thrilled. Um, but no, I know what you're saying. So uh, the fact is, believers, the, the, the Christian life is a series of either yielding to the Spirit or yielding to the flesh, right? Galatians 5. So... Uh, it's not possible to attain practical sinless perfection this side of glory. Positionally, we're righteous. You know, I talked about that Sunday in New Mexico. That 
you know, what we need is to be perfect. We've got to have Christ's righteousness given to us. And when we stand before God someday, it's the righteousness of Christ that will qualify us to enter heaven. Not our own righteousness. Because our righteousness is like filthy rags. We can never do enough. So, so we will never be practically perfect, out, you know, behaviorally perfect, this side of glory. So every day, you know, we've got the this indwelling Spirit of God who is convicting us of sin, leading us, guiding us, prompting us. And we either say, yes, Lord, and we follow that. And if we do, uh, let me look at uh, Galatians uh, 5 here. I don't know why when they put the Bible together, they didn't put Galatians first in Paul's epistles. It always throws me because I think chronologically, but it's after Romans and 1st and Corinthians. But anyway, uh, in Galatians 5, uh, Paul says, "Walk This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Sounds about like what he said in Romans 7, doesn't it? Right? So you can't, you can't play the, that was before he was saved card here, because he's writing to a bunch of believers. But anyway, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, because his whole point here is that the Judaizers were saying, you've got to keep the law if you really want to be saved, just the way Calvinists are saying, you've got to keep the law if you really want to prove that you're saved. Not to be saved, but to prove that you really are saved. Um, then he goes on, now the works of the flesh are evident. He, he lists several of them, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Not just the biggies, by the way. He goes on to talk about envy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, I mean, these are, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill sins that we all struggle with, right? And if he left anything out, just in case, he says, uh, uh, and the like, or anything like them. In New King James says, and the like. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. Against us there is no law. Uh, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have. We now have the answer. We now have the new nature. We don't have to yield to the old man. We're not sold under sin. We've been set free. And when we sin by yielding to the flesh instead of the spirit, it's like we're once again imprisoning ourselves in the old man. Or to use Paul's um, terminology of old man, new man, like he does in Ephesians and Colossians, it's kind of like as a believer, we're going back into the closet and pulling out those old tattered and torn and stained clothes that we gave up when Christ gave us you know, perfectly white robe, you know. Why would you want to wear those old clothes? Um, but notice he concludes this section. If we live in the Spirit, and this is verse 25, in Greek you can tell the type of clause it is by the grammar, by the syntax, I mean, the construction. And <clears throat> this is a first-class conditional if, which means since. It's like, if we live in the Spirit and we do, is the implication, right? So since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So here's the point. It's possible, listen carefully, it's possible to be alive spiritually, that is, regenerated, born again, saved, you know, all those things, and not be walking in the Spirit. Otherwise, why would Paul say, since we live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, if it was automatic? It's not automatic. So, the Christian life is a series of um, yielding, and it's uh, this Sunday we're going to talk about uh, a, 
paradigm that I've periodically brought up because when it comes up, it's, it's, I think, very helpful. And that is the no trust, obey, where you got to know the Lord before you'll trust him. You got to trust him before you'll obey him. So if you have an obedience problem, if you have a behavior problem, it's not necessarily an indication you're not saved. It just means at that moment, you're not trusting the Lord. Which is why Paul repeatedly says, walk by faith, walk by faith, walk by faith. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith right now. Are you walking by faith or are you living based on what you can see? You know, I, I sometimes think it would be so much easier to live the Christian life if we didn't have to contend with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, First John. You know, I mean, I know that's a some you know kind of a bad analogy and might sound terrible to say because obviously there are people that are blind and i wouldn't wish that on anybody but i'm just saying you know the heart of man is desperately wicked so even if we can't see believe me there's still that temptation there but don't you agree that sometimes seeing things just makes you you know cater to the flesh the lust of the flesh lust of the pride, eyes and the pride of life someone had a hand i think back here yeah Yeah, the prayer. And lead us not into temptation. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, and again, so the comment is, you know, the Lord taught the disciples to pray, and he said, you know, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, those types of things. So let me be clear, and I, and I think we've seen this for the last 10 weeks. Calvinists certainly agree that Christians sin, right? They have no choice but to you know, accept that fact because A, they, they know it experientially. <laughs> None of them are claiming to be perfect. And secondly, they know from Scripture that's the case. So they wouldn't argue with that. They just qualify it as we looked at last time where they'll say things like you can't sin too much or you can't sin all the way or you can't fall all the way or, you know, you, they, they give all, you have to have some measure, a certain unquantifiable measure of good works. But yeah, we, it's, oh, you can sin a little bit. Just don't sin a lot. And so they insert phrases like, uh, let's go ahead and flip over to 1 John. Um, and, and let me explain how this passage has been completely eviscerated of its original meaning. 1 John chapter 3. So let's pick it up in verse... Uh, 29. Remember, there were no, or 28. There were no chapter divisions originally in this in the Bible. So, First John chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children. So he's talking to believers here. Abide in Him. Same word that we talked about earlier that Jesus uses in John 15. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. I'm talking about confidence that you'll get into heaven here. Just saying that you'll be confident. You'll, you you want to, when the Lord comes back, you want to be found faithful. You want to be found walking with Him, serving Him, right? Um, now, verse 29, if you know that He is righteous, again, first class conditional, so since you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who, this says practices righteousness, but in, in Greek it's just does, he who does righteousness or does what is righteous is born of Him. In other words, righteous behavior can only be born out of the indwelling Christ. You, you can't, you know, as Isaiah said, unbelievers 
their righteousness is like filthy rags. They might do moral things, but it's not going to commend them to a holy God. So true righteous behavior can only come from true righteous, truly righteous person. How do we get righteous? We are declared righteous by imputation the moment we place our faith in Christ. Uh, Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and many, many other passages. So again, Christ is righteous, and you know everyone who does what is righteous is born of Him. But that word practices is, is not the best translation, and you're going to see even more, and in, in, in all English Bibles handle it this way. Uh, he goes on, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Any doubt there about the eternal destiny of the people to whom he's writing, <laughs> including himself? He, he uses the first person, so he's talking about himself. No doubt whatsoever. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself, just as he, Jesus, is mostly pure. Is that what he says? No. Now, if the, the next section that we're about to read, if the common, most common interpretation of this, and nine out of ten commentaries get it wrong, were correct, that would be what John would have had to say in verse 3. Because what most people say is that as long as you're mostly righteous, it proves you're really a, a Christian. But if there's habitual, consistent sin in your life, you're not really a Christian. Because there's not consistent, habitual sin in Christ's life. He's mostly righteous. <laughs> that would be the point. But he doesn't say that. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. He is 100% pure. So John goes on in this section that's really, when properly understood, is a great teaching in God's Word about sin and the life of a believer. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is only a little bit of sin. Is that what it says? No sin. He's 100% pure. There's zero sin in him. Therefore, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Right? You can't be abiding in Christ and sinning at the same time. And here's where people's interpretation goes awry. Abiding in Him is not a synonym for be a Christian. Most people read verse 6 as, whoever is really a Christian does not habitually sin. But the text doesn't say that. It says doesn't sin, period. And the qualifier is if you're abiding in Him. So again, you can't say, man, I'm in abiding in close fellowship with Christ. I'm you know, really have an intimate, warm, loving relationship with Him. I'm prayed up. I just feel the Spirit of God moving in my life and be sinning at the same time. Those things are not compatible. Um, whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Now again, we're reading in our English, you know, understanding of, you know, knowing the Lord. We, you know, we tend to think, uh, to know the Lord means to be saved. And in some cases it does. But there are a lot of passages where know is experiential. For example, Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you all this time and you've not known me? Was he, was he accusing Philip of being an unbeliever? Of course not. He's talking about that deeper, more intimate knowledge. Or Philippians 3. Paul himself says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul saying, admitting I'm not a believer? Man, I'm not a believer. I need to know Christ. No, no. Knowing Christ is used in two senses. Positionally, once for all, by faith, and experientially, kind of like abiding. 
And so you can't be sinning and claiming to have that experiential knowledge of Christ in that moment. Same thing with seeing Him. You know, there's, there's a quality of seeing. You, you've seen Him in the sense that you know who He is, you've trusted in Him for salvation, but you don't have that deeper, intimate relationship with Him. It'd be like if, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, Greg were to say, uh, hey, have you seen uh, Emily? Uh, I'm not going to say, well, yeah, she's about this tall, blonde hair, whatever. No, he's going to go, no, no, no. I mean, like, have you seen her lately? I'm, I'm looking for her. Is she around? That, that, or someone might say, uh, you know, going back to knowledge, uh, uh, you know, make some comment about, uh, say, Wendy. And, and I might, like, like they'll say, uh, uh, you know, Wendy doesn't like onions, but, you know, she could eat a few onions, right? She doesn't, she doesn't mind a little bit. And I'm like, no, no, you don't know Wendy. She will not eat onions. Now, I'm not accusing you of having never met her. I'm just saying you don't know her the way I know her, right? So that's what he's talking about here. So he says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who, and here's that word again, practices, but the Greek is just does. That's, that's the verb. He who does what is righteous is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. Wow, well, that sure sounds like he's talking about a, 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 an unbeliever, doesn't it? Well, let me read it again. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Okay, how many of you have sinned? Are you Satan worshipers? Of course not. not. It's not speaking here positionally. It's not saying you're unsaved and on the road to hell. He's just saying when you sin, you're of the devil. Again, it's not the, the new nature, the born of God part of you in Christ that's producing the sin. It's the old nature that was sold under sin. Right? And so... Uh, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Again, the born of God part of us doesn't sin. So who has another translation of verse 9? Or I mean, of the Bible. I assume if you have verse 9, you have the whole Bible. What's yours say in verse 9? Uh, no one who is born of God practices sin. Yeah. So there you go. That's inserting a word, just like they do in James two. The word that in this case, there's not even the word poeo, which is to do. It's just does not sin, the, the the verb for sin with a negative in front of it. So it doesn't say practices. Uh, what is? Do you have the same thing? Okay. Uh, another version says, "Whoever has been born of God does not continue to sin completely." You know, same thing as. Pra- uh, whatever you said. So um, so the born of God part of us doesn't sin. So the point is, uh, you know, we do sin. And, and we can sin a lot if we cater to the flesh. And Paul paints a picture of what that life's going to look like, right? By the way, Paul, hold on to that thought for just a second. Paul also paints a picture in 1 Corinthians 3 of a believer who stands before the judgment seat of Christ one day and every single thing they've done in their life is burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. They get zero rewards. Now, have you ever thought about what their life looked like on earth before they died or before the rapture? Uh, same thing in Luke 19. There's that one servant who does nothing with his mina. Still gets into the kingdom, but he gets no rewards. So, absolutely, it is 
theoretically possible for a believer who caters to the flesh to live a pretty ugly life. And let's face it, uh, why do we have this tendency, why are we so prone to, to quantify things as if our occasional sins are less offensive to God than someone else's more habitual sins, right? Like, they're habitually sinning. They can't possibly go to heaven. I only sin a little bit, so I'm okay, you know? If there's pride there. And, and so Calvinists miss the boat when they fail to distinguish between the sanctification of the believer and the justification you know, uh, of the believer, when they fail to distinguish between discipleship and, and salvation as we commonly talk about it. So, yeah, you had a comment. Well, I've got a commentary on verse 9. From the Greek tenses used here, the verse uh, refers to the practice of sin and might as well be paraphrased. Whoever is born of God does not make sin the practice of his life. Correct. So that's a complete false not true. So that's just not true. So they're appealing. Again, here's where they have to twist things. So this is called the appeal to the progressive present use of the present tense. There's nothing in the Greek that indicates progressive present. That's a man-made creation of you know different categories of the present tense verb. But the present tense in and of itself says nothing about progressive. We use progress. We use the present tense all the time. I, you know, I'm going to the store. Does that mean I'm habitually, consistently going to the store? Present tense, right? Or I am at the store. I am, present tense. Does that mean I'm always at the store? No. So present, the progressive present is just not accurate. There's no, it's not, no little asterisk by the Greek text when he was originally writing it under the Spirit that says this means habitually. That's false. It's a, it's an, it's a, I'm sorry, it's a, it's a, uh, what we call a, uh, not logical fallacy, but a, uh, a lexical fallacy or a, an exegetical fallacy, this notion of, you know, the progressive present, because it, it, you know, rears its head, you know, whenever it's convenient for him to. By the way, another, let's see if I can find it here, it just popped into my mind, but in First John chapter 1, he uses the same tense, present tense, and says, let's see, verse 8, 1 John 1.8, if we say that we have no sin, present tense, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you are consistent and using the progressive present idea, if we say that we progressively always have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Um, but then he goes on to say in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make ourselves a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, um, if we say that we have no, I think it's uh, have is present tense, and I think it's actually sin. I don't have my Greek text in front of me, but I think sin there is actually not a verb. It's the noun. So it's if we have no sin, we're a liar. So on the one hand, you'd have Paul saying, you know, if 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 we um, if we say if we don't say we have this progressive life of sin, we're lying. On the other hand, he says if we claim that we've never sinned we're lying so again if you 
if you're consistent, and again, there's nothing in the Greek text that indicates some type of usage of it. Its context has to determine meaning. Then you, you get you get Paul or John contradicting himself here. So you don't have to progressively. He's not arguing in chapter three that whoever is born of God does not habitually sin. It just does not sin, and that's one of the reasons why I like um, the New King James. Now earlier, when he when twice he 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 translates the New King James translators translated the word do as practice that wasn't a theological thing for them to do that the word poeo can mean to practice something not like habitually as the connotation we might say you know he's a you know he's practicing this or whatever well, we don't like when you practice golf you're not always practicing golf but in that moment you're practicing it we could just you know if you're at the driving range we could say you know uh, where's Paul? Oh, he's out at the driving range. What's he doing? Well, he's he's practicing, or we could say, or he's playing golf, or he's swinging a club, or whatever. Practice just means doing, and that's you know. So it's it's not the it's. I think in retrospect, because of the Cal, onslaught of Calvinist you know interpretation, um, it would be better if they had just translated everyone who like I'm looking at verse 29. Everyone who does righteousness, you know. Uh, is of him the same thing i think we came across it one other place but that's not a uh you know verse seven he who does righteousness is righteous that wasn't a theologically motivated interpretation but niv nasb esv some of all these others where they insert habitually or continually sin down in verse nine that is a theologically motivated insertion that's not there in the text so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense but um so i want to uh, just kind of end with a few scriptures here and sort of reiterate what we've been saying throughout this whole series and then I'll tell you where we're going uh, from here. So obviously we got to start with a key verse for not by works ministries, Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we've done but according to his mercy he saved us. Contrary to what Calvinists say, our assurance is not based on good works. We're not saved by works. Why would we look to those works to prove that we're saved? They had nothing to do with it. Uh, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So that's where my assurance comes from, the promise of Christ. Uh, if Jesus meant what he said, and he did, then I have eternal life. And if it can somehow be lost or disproven, then, you know, if it can be lost, it was never eternal to begin with. If it can be disproven, then how can you ever know if you're saved, right? Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So a lot of the arguments for you know, refuting the, the fifth point of Calvinism are the same arguments we would use for the eternal security of the believer. And remember, you're going to hear Calvinists say this you know, passionately, and the guy that I was on the phone with today was passionate. Oh, I believe in eternal security. What he means is, if you had it, you know, you can never lose it. But you just can't know whether you had it until you die. Because if you don't persevere, you never had it. Well, that's not really eternal security. That's perseverance. That's why the fifth point of Calvinism, the P, is perseverance of the saints. Otherwise, it would be some acronym that ended with an E word, meaning eternal security. So over the years, it has sort of become morphed into perseverance as if your salvation and your eternal destiny is secure and it's going to persevere beyond all measure and no matter what, you'll go to heaven. That's not what the fifth point of Calvinism teaches. 
fifth point of Calvinism teaches it's perseverance of the saints, not perseverance of God, perseverance of saints, meaning believers. You must persevere or you never really had salvation. I can't emphasize that uh, enough. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, the verse I mentioned uh, in the section I read from the Spirit of the Antichrist book, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. Uh, now, the caller was pretty astute. You could tell he had done his homework before he called, and he pointed out, well, what do you do with verse 12? Well, let's talk about that, 2 Timothy 2.12. So Paul begins by saying, this is a, let's start out in verse 11, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, and we did, again, first class condition, we shall also live with him, period. If we endure, we shall reign with him. What does that mean? Not all believers are going to reign in the kingdom. You understand that, right? Paul told the disciples they would reign on 12 thrones. Jesus said, I mean, not Paul, Jesus told the disciples they would reign on 12 thrones. Jesus said in Luke 19 that some faithful servants that faithfully serve him while they await the coming king are going to serve over 10 cities or 5 cities or whatever. But some people, their lives have not proven them worthy of serving and reigning and serving in leadership positions. But Paul says, if we endure, we're going to reign with him. Then he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. What? Deny us what? It's the same, I can't even read the punctuation, same verse. Of course, the verses weren't there, but it's a second sentence. But the context, he says, if you endure, you're going to reign. If you deny him, that is, if you don't endure, he will deny us. What? The right to reign. He's not saying he'll deny you entrance into heaven. He's including himself here. First person. We. We. Otherwise, you've got Paul saying, wow, if, if, if I deny him, he's going to not let me into heaven. And Paul was, no one was more sure of his salvation than Paul. Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So context, context, context. People insert heaven and hell in here, and he's not talking about that at all. If we endure, we're going to reign. If we don't endure, he's not going to let us reign. And if we are faithless, the verse on the screen, meaning no faith whatsoever, we've abandoned the faith altogether, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny one of his own children. Our spiritual DNA proves that we're a believer even when our behavior doesn't act like we're a believer. Aren't you glad that our identification as a believer in the eyes of God is not based upon our behavior? Absolutely not. In the same way that our eternal salvation is not based on our behavior. It's not by works of righteousness, right? So um, that's what, you know, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13 is saying. You know, um, we're going to rise with him. We're part of the family of God. We're, we're, we may or may not reign with him depending on how faithful we are to the end. But absolutely, even if we lose the faith altogether, um, we will still be in heaven because God cannot deny himself. Now, you know how MacArthur takes this passage? So he says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful to himself to send us to hell because he cannot deny himself. That's how he interprets it. If we, don't have, if we lose the faith, remember, faithless there doesn't mean weak faith. It means no faith. Uh, then God will be faithful to his, 
his holiness, his standard or whatever, and, and, and he can't deny himself, he's got to send us to hell if we lose the faith. That's the way they interpret it. Again, because that's where their theology requires them to go. Um, so, I mean, perseverance of the saints uh, doesn't pass muster. It doesn't, like the other five points, it just doesn't uh, work. Uh, so let's, uh, let's just summarize them again here, and then we'll open it up for questions, and then I'll tell you what we're going to do in the coming weeks. So total depravity, they believe, is total inability. You do not have the ability to do the one thing the Bible says you must do to be saved, and that is believe the gospel. You cannot do it. God has to do it for you. Um, unconditional election, uh, they believe that there are no conditions whatsoever that you must meet in order to go to heaven. Um, it's not the election part that troubles me. I believe the Bible teaches election. I just believe it also teaches free will. And there, I also believe there is one condition, as I just stated, which is you must believe the gospel. And if you don't, you're not going to heaven. So I don't, I don't agree with unconditional election. Limited atonement, they believe because uh, the atonement is actually what saves the elect, not your faith. Your faith is just an outward involuntary response. Uh, but what saves you is the atonement that clearly Christ must have only died for the elect. That's why it's limited. We believe Christ died for everyone in the world and that his death is sufficient for everyone, but only if, if efficient. It only actually accomplishes your salvation if you believe it. So the atonement doesn't save us. The atonement makes it possible for us to be saved. What saves us? Faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, they teach irresistible grace, which is that you cannot reject the gospel. If you're elect, and if you're not elect, you cannot believe the gospel. You don't have that ability. We believe that you can resist it. That it's a bona fide offer. You can either receive Christ by faith, or you can reject Him. And then perseverance. Because all of these things, it's a, it's a, it's a lockstep program. All of these things God does, and you don't have a choice in the matter. You can't resist them, so forth and so on. You will persevere until the end of your life. And if you don't, it proves you're not really saved. And I... I disagree with uh, all five of those. So uh, next week, we'll, we'll take some questions here in a second, but uh, just to close out, uh, and I'll stay as long as I need to, but next week we're going to have just an open Q&A on anything. It doesn't have to be about salvation. It could be about end times prophecy. It could be about general current events, whatever. Just open the floor for uh, <coughs> Q&A. Uh, and then the following week, we're either going to take the week off before we start our evangelism training session in September <clears throat> or if I get a volunteer uh, as I had, did you get my text about that by the way no. I think it got buried because you responded to the one I sent after that but if you go back and look I had asked you something about, about that so we'll talk okay. afterwards but um, so uh, I'll keep you posted on that next week but the 24th next week we'll meet do an open Q&A we'll have live stream the following week we'll either take a break before we get into the fall series or we might have another gathering but someone else will be teaching and then on September 7th and this is relevant to those of you that usually live stream us we'll begin an eight-week series uh, uh, you know on how to share the gospel and I'm not going to be leading it I'll be here for most of it but I'm not going to be the one doing the teaching so it won't be live streamed and the nature of it it's not conducive to live streaming it's more of an interactive practical training uh, so I will do some other teaching or posting uh, of audio anyway, you know, for, for the, those eight weeks. But I hope you'll come. Um, it's something that 
you know you don't need to be afraid of. In fact, hopefully this series will give you the confidence about the incredible gospel of our Lord such that you can just talk about it freely without even thinking about it, just instinctively talking about it. So it's really it's going to be neat. I think you'll enjoy it. That starts September 7 and will run eight uh, concurrent weeks. So we've got two weeks before then. Next week, open Q&A. The following week, I'll keep you posted on what we decide to do there. But uh, that wraps up our Calvinism, uh, 10 parts. Hopefully it you know, was both challenging on some respects and, and encouraging in others. But uh, we want to just you know, continue to contend for the faith earnestly and make sure we promote grace. Okay, questions. You had one, I think. Right. Yeah. So the question is, uh, what do you say to the person who says that God's election is based on his foreknowledge? Right. So that we we did talk about this at one point in the series. I don't remember where, but I remember having a, a fairly good discussion about it. So the biblical terms election predestination and foreknowledge are three different terms. There, there's a correlation, but they're not the same term. And the reason that God's election, uh, and by the way, in Peter, just because someone might, some of you astute Bible scholars might point this out. I think it's in Peter. First uh, Peter, yeah, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge doesn't mean based upon the foreknowledge it means in keeping with right so god's election cannot be based on foreknowledge because there was nothing for him to know if if you if foreknowledge comes first by definition to know something in advance means there's got to be something to know so who put that something to know out there god's the only eternal one there's no other being eternal god created time he's in eternity past, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So if he's going to make a decision on something he knows, like reading ahead in the book, who wrote, who wrote that? Who, who, who put that out there? Nobody else. There's nobody else. To, it has to be God. So yes, God foreknows. He foreknows because he wrote the book, right? It's just like, you know, I wrote this book, let's say, and, you know, if someone's reading it, um, you know, and they say, man, I'm on chapter 8, can't wait to get to chapter 9, I could say, wow, well, chapter nine's a biggie. I can't wait for you to get to it because I know what's in there. Well, why do I know what's in there? Because I wrote it, right? I didn't write it because I knew it. I know it because I wrote it. Does that make sense? See, election cannot... Okay, no, that's fair. It, it is a kind of an obtuse topic, but election is a, is a decision, a choice by God in eternity past. To do something in the future, he that something had to be done. That decision had to be made in order for it to be able to be known. You can't look ahead in the future to know something that hasn't. Where did that something come from? What What does God know? God, you know, people. Well, no, not even that. I'm just saying. Um, by definition. Foreknowledge creates requires time, because for is a time word. It's a before, right? God had prior knowledge of. What did God have prior knowledge of? 
things that happened within the realm of time, space, and matter. And God's the author of time, space, and matter. So all I'm saying is it, the order is important. And people, it, it sometimes makes election more palatable to people who struggle with it. And we all do. Look, I, I, I'm not saying that election is, um, you know, thrilled with it or whatever. I acknowledge there's this tension between election and free will. But to make it more palatable, people say, well, God just didn't choose. God looked ahead through time, saw what was going to happen, and then said, okay, I'll elect that person. But that's impossible because election has to come first before you can know it. So God wrote the script. He wrote the book. He also read ahead. I mean, he, he can see what's coming. But to, to, to make foreknowledge the basis of election is to make God dependent upon something else. And God is dependent upon no one. God is utterly and completely sovereign. So, and then predestination is another thing altogether, and we can talk about that too. But yeah, I've heard it said that you know, like you referred to, God created time. But there is no time for God. Correct. Um, so that uh, creation and Armageddon and the second coming of Christ are all simultaneous. Uh, yeah. So. Happened. And so, so so people. So her comment about time, and he knew us before we were in our mother's womb. So yeah, uh, if, if, if there is no time for God, he knew, he knew me, he knew her, he knew you. Yeah. So yeah, people. The comment is, uh, people often will say that God is. Uh, you know, outside of time, which of course he is outside of time. What I hear people say, and what I've said, is that God exists in the eternal now, right? Right. So, for example, Calvary, the atoning work of God in His Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, occurred at a moment in time, right, two thousand years ago. But God and His plan of the ages, you know, that 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 sacrifice paid the sins for everyone all the way back to Adam and everyone until the new heavens and the new earth. So it transcends time. So absolutely, God is outside of time. And and so in that sense, things happen together, but from God's perspective. But um, we live in the realm of time, space, and matter, and God has given us a roadmap in Scripture of the timetable, like the 490-year timetable, for example, that I mentioned earlier, uh, that will happen in a sequential order. But I wish I had a white marker board, but so if you think about Back to your question. If you think about God, the eternal creator of the universe, in uh, in eternity past, so before Genesis 1-1, right? Um, that's why we believe in the doctrine of ex nihilo, that God created the universe out of nothing, right? The universe didn't just happen. You know, we didn't evolve over millions of years from a wet rock or some panspermia from another, you know, universe somewhere or whatever, galaxy. God is. That's why he is the I am. In the beginning, God. <laughs> okay? God is. God is the eternal I am. So if, if you have, you can just picture like a circle with God. And there's no time or anything out there. So, yeah, so do we have a... Yeah, set, set that up and I'll draw it. So God... I don't know if that will... 
Well, that's that's all right. Um, so if you can just picture God outside of time, and then at a moment, you know, God spoke the world into existence, and now there's not just this circle with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now there's a universe, and all that's in it, as we read about in Genesis 1, the six days of creation, right? So if you're saying that in that first circle, before anything was created in eternity, which we know from Ephesians, that's when election took place as an eternity past, God first looked ahead and then made his election based on that. What's he looking at? There's, there's nothing in eternity but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there's got to be something for him to foreknow before he can make his choice based on his foreknowledge. So all I'm saying is election has to come first. Then, sure, he's, he looks ahead and he, he, he definitely has foreknowledge, but he, he also is, you know, uh, Acts 15 says, known to God from eternity are all his works. So he, he, he knows because he did them, right? So I don't know if that's helpful. It's a tough uh, issue. It's kind of like trying to define the Trinity. You know, people have used all sorts of analogies to describe three and one, but it's an antinomy. It's something that you can't be three but one. So people will talk about, you know, water, ice, and steam, you know, three but one. Or a man can be a father, a son, and a husband or something like that, but it's still one man. Well, that's fine, but those are that's not the same. The Trinity is, you know, one of the hardest things to define because God is one, yet he's three. And God elects, yet we have free will. And uh, it's, it's, hard, it's, it's a difficult one. Yeah. Correct. Whereas the election of the church or individuals to follow Christ reverts back to creation, that God created all men to worship Him. Yeah. And so we can't necessarily put um, election of believers individuals. in the same um, way that He elected Israel as a nation. Yeah, so the comment is the, core, the relationship between individual election unto salvation and God's election of the nation of Israel, which we call the chosen nation of Israel. What do we mean by the chosen nation? He elected them, right? That's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. And frankly, a lot of non-Calvinists who would agree with me right down the line on my critique of Calvinism are just not comfortable with individual election. So they, they say that they believe that every reference to election is referring to national Israel. And, you know, I respect that view. I, I talked about it earlier in this series. I just disagree. I think Ephesians is not talking about Israel. I think it's talking about individuals. But you're right. There's a different purpose in mind. There's a, it's a different context. It's one thing to choose Israel within human history as part of his plan, the apple of his eye, from which Jesus will reign for you know eternity in the kingdom. And it's another thing to elect from the foundation of the world those who would be saved. So that's the, that's the real key passage. And, um, and that's in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says um, in verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, right? So 
um, you know, I mean, it's, you can't you can't be before the foundation of the world and still be looking ahead at something if the world hasn't happened yet. I guess is what I'm saying. So, all right, other questions or thoughts? We can't end on this because our brains will be fried. So let's end on a simpler one. Somebody ask a question or comment. How about well, no. that's even worse. Let's go back to election. Let's go back to election. I would enjoy that more. Uh, yeah. Can we speak to Calvinism and belief of free will and grace as antinomies? Can we, so Cal, the question is, free will and grace, are, are they antinomies? Well, no. Well, we just come through Calvinism. Yeah. Five yeah. And we've seen verses that they hang their hat on. Right. Right. No, no. So the, 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 what Calvinism teaches, uh, you know, he said, we've seen the verses that they hang their hats on and we've refuted those verses, uh, you know, based on what we believe the scripture teaches. Uh, can they both be true? No, for several reasons. Number one, the, the, the principle of the singularity of meaning. So these verses have one meaning and only one meaning. Now, Either we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong, or perhaps we're both wrong. Maybe there's some other meaning that we can't imagine. But they can't both be right under any circumstances because they're self-contradictory, right? So, for example, 2 Timothy 2, uh, 12 can't be, or 13 can't be saying, if you deny the faith, you're going to go to hell, and if you deny the faith, you won't go to hell because I can't deny myself. They can't be saying both of those things because they're, polar opposites. They, they, they're contradiction. So the law of non-contradiction would come into play. So, uh, so that's one reason. But secondly, um, you know, the whole systems are diabolically opposed. You know, we believe the dispensational grace view is that, you know, whosoever will may come. It's a bona fide offer. Christ died for the sins of the world. Whoever wants to can believe and receive the, the free gift of eternal life. We uh, looked at John 1.12 several times in this series, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So again and again, you see these references that either outright state or certainly imply that you that it's on you. You have the choice. And what they would have us believe, for example here, is that, sure, yeah, whoever receives and becomes a child of God, but you didn't choose to receive him of your own free will. God regenerated you and then forced you to believe. In fact, irresistible grace, you couldn't have resisted it even if you wanted to. Well, that's a completely different you know, uh, picture that, that Calvinism paints. So no, they're not, they can't both be correct. Um, they're diabolically opposed. The same way Arminianism and Calvinism are clearly dis different, you know, um, even though, I, as I've said, they both ultimately bring it back to works being the determinative factor, they're different, you know. Arminians teach you you have to work for your salvation. So Jesus didn't pay at all. He paid most of it. We cooperate with him, and we bring something to the table, and he brings something to the table, and we, you know, if we bring enough, we're saved. If we don't, we lose it, you know. Calvinists, it's very similar to Arminianism, and I've made this point in, in the book Getting the Gospel Wrong, that really they're, 
they just had a lot of baggage coming out of the Reformation that they couldn't quite let go of. So you know, it was sola fide, but uh, we don't want to let we don't want to imply that someone can get saved for nothing. They got to do something. So they bring in works through the back door and make works a requirement. Remember, they're absolutely necessary. R.C. Sproul's word, absolutely necessary. Um, they bring them through the back door and say, well, if you don't have them, you know, you don't get in. So definitely would not be comfortable with that characterization of it, for sure, that, you know, they're, they can't both be true. So, yeah. Luther and Calvin were contemporaries, mm -hmm. weren't they? Yeah, they were. Mm -hmm. Did Luther tend toward the Calvinists or the Armenian uh, view, or was he something? So I don't have that slide, uh, or I could tell you the exact time frames. We did talk about it in an earlier session, but they, they overlapped just briefly for about uh, 10 years. Um, um, but Lutheranism, I got this question from someone else, by the way, um, recently by email. Uh, Lutheranism today is very much Arminian. I mean, that's definitely sacramental salvation, almost like Catholicism. You can lose it. You, you know, you have to do certain things to get it to begin with. It's not just simply trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Um, but uh, Luther, you know, what he was reacting to was the the state church, the indulgences, the the politics of it, the basically taking it out of the hands of faith. And as he read his Bible, he realized, you know what, it is faith. It's faith alone. And so he, uh, you know, he wrote those 95 statements that, you know, repudiated what Roman Catholicism was teaching. And, but again, he, he just wasn't comfortable with free grace. And that's what grace is. It's free. And I love reiterating that. In fact, that's a great way to end because it just drives... Calvin is crazy because it just something doesn't sit right to them. So I want everybody within the sound of my voice to know salvation is absolutely free. It costs you absolutely nothing. Not an ounce of anything. You don't have to promise. You don't have to pledge. You don't have to be willing. You don't have to turn or stop or start or you just simply receive the gift. And by definition, a gift must be freely offered and freely received. And so absolutely it's free. There are no obligations to you. It's not a contract. You know, I think I've mentioned many times uh, that a lot of people don't like describing salvation as simply being rescued from hell and rescued from the penalty of sin. But that's precisely what it is. They say, oh, that's just, you know, Jesus didn't die just to give you fire insurance. He absolutely did. That's the only reason he died. He came to the world to save sinners. Not to show us what to do to sign up to, for the club. He didn't come in to, you know, help us along the way. And, you know, salvation has no obligations, you know. It would be like throwing a life preserver to someone who fell off the boat and is drowning. And then just as they're about to grab it, you reel it in a little bit and say, now wait, before you grab that, I want to make sure you understand what you're getting into here. Before I pull you up out of the water into this boat, I got to make sure you're going to follow me. You're going to promise. You're going to thank me. You're going to live for me. You're going to recognize that I'm your Lord. None of that matters in that moment. The person's drowning. They need to be rescued, and that's what Jesus did. He rescued us. Now, as believers, should we follow Him, obey Him, serve Him, honor Him, love Him, do all of those things that we've talked about, yielding to the Spirit? Of 
course. That's the life of a Christian life. But there's a big, huge difference between we must do that or we're not saved, and we should do that. And really, Calvinism versus dispensational grace view comes down to should versus must. Every believer should absolutely bear fruit. Every believer should absolutely not habitually sin and should not do this and should, not, and should do this. But the minute you make it a requirement, remember what Sproul said, absolutely necessary, then you've crossed the line, in my view. So, All right, well, thank you guys. So next week, same time, same place, live stream. It'll be all Q&A. And then uh, we'll keep you up to speed on that one final week before we shift gears into our new series on September 7th. All right. Thanks, JB.